0: To light treason news, everyone, pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. I'm joined by Meredith. Hello. Hello. Okay, here's the situation. So last night, or actually, no, this was Thursday, Meredith. Get your shit together. So on Thursday, I went to an outdoor screening of Psycho at a Public park here in New York City, or here in Brooklyn, I should say, specifically. Mm-hmm. It was very fun. We had a great time. Yada yada yada. Not the point of the story. So the point of the story is uh and I know Meredith, you know this, having yeah. lived in Brooklyn, having uh you know, gone to outdoor movies in the past, adults oftentimes bring adult beverages to drink at the park to watch movies. And it really varies by screening if they allow alcohol or not. But usually it seems like more and more, especially since, you know, COVID and we've been able to order to-go drinks and stuff like that, that most screenings allow alcoholic beverages. So (laughs) because it's sort of prevalent at this point, The group I was with didn't bother to check if that was the case or not. So we all brought alcohol and we all arrived separately. So my friend Neha got there first and they just let her in. She had like a little six pack of Prosecco with her. They didn't give a shit. But by the time I rolled up, they had a full security checkpoint. Yeah. And I texted Charles, Very confrontationally. And I said, why the fuck didn't you tell me they don't allow alcohol? And he texted me back. I just fucking found out. And I'm trying to figure out what the fuck I'm going to (laughs) do. So I walked down this little side trail like, oh, fuck. I got to figure out how I'm going to smuggle this shit in. Because I'm not throwing away a six pack of White Claw. I'm a white girl. You know? I basically might as well die if I have to do that. Right? So... I'm like, do I know anybody in the area? Could I like store it at their apartment and then pick it up later? And as I'm trying to figure this out, I walk past, no lie, probably six people tearing open packs of alcohol and just hiding it any way they can. So I walked past a couple that was pouring it into a water bottle. <laughs> I walked past another woman who was just frantic, just trying to figure out what she was going to do. Long story short, what I ended up doing was I Marge simpson did. it where I had a very flowy dress on. (laughs) So I (laughs) put maybe four down my dress. And I should mention also, it was incredibly obvious because um, you could see like the bulks on my waist. I shoved two in, I had brought like um, one of those rolled mats, you know, that you can unfurl and use as like, like kind of almost like a tarp for the park. So I shoved two in there, and then the others, I just hid on in like a side pocket in my uh, thermos, or not my thermos, my um, cooler, because it was just sort of like kind of hidden enough where I'm like, I think I can get away with it. And then I got to the checkpoint and I was like, I'm just going to flirt with this guy because I was like, it's kind of obvious what's going on here, uh, but hopefully I can just charm my way in. And as is usually the case, they're not getting paid enough to care. <laughs> So, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was like kind of mutually understood. If you tried to hide it, they would pretend not to see it, you know, but you have to at least pretend to hide it. Like I couldn't yeah. just have a six pack of white claw in there. Then they would have to be like, sorry, you know. Um But I so I snuck mine in. I I don't actually I don't know how everybody else got in. I think they probably hid theirs as well. But Neha I was the first one there after Neha and she just watched me pull can after can out of my dress like <laughs> watching clowns emerge from like one of those tiny cars <laughs> she was yeah. just like And I it's can't also worth you to this.
1: It's also worth noting that the movie you were going to see was Psycho. So
0: <laughs> Yeah. So uh yeah, it was it was so this ridiculous. was like
1: really really working really hard to make sure that you could get nice and lit up.
0: Well, the thing is, while I, watching Norman Bates, I always bring more stuff than some other people because, um, you know, there's always one or two freeloaders. <laughs>
1: oh, I'm I'm merely. <laughs> Merely pointing out that there is something beautiful and very New York in, oh, no, no, no. I'm just like, explaining. the choices like, of these things.
0: <laughs> so I'll bring a six-pack, and I'll drink two of those, and other people take the rest, which is fine, because I've also been a freeloader. Um But, yeah, I always bring – and Charles does this, too – we bring a lot of food because, you know, I would rather us overpack than, like, people – don't bring anything. You know? Yeah. Well, when you were, uh, I mean, the
1: when you were in Madison with me and you were trying to plan a picnic for the Fourth oh of July, God. which ultimately didn't happen, the amount of time that you spent discussing how much food people were probably going to bring and how much more than it was going to be necessary was astounding to me. You There's just, always an issue
0: uh, too because if you don't picnic a lot, I think we, as a group, we tend to picnic a lot. <laughs> Because, like, it's kind of an affordable thing you can do in the city. And it's very nice during the summer. So we, we picnic a lot during the summer. and But people who don't picnic hard don't know what to bring. And will bring, like, really impractical food yeah. and, like, beverages for the park. So that was a large part of that conversation. It was, like, people not who aren't really familiar with our picnicking game being, like, should I bring tuna? And we're all like, no. (laughs) What? (laughs) Just an example. Uh, Nobody ain't actually proposed that. But uh, yeah, you know, like there, there's certain things like Charles's thing is always, he gets the prepackaged charcuterie boards that just already are like chopped up cheese, chopped up meats in one of those like, you know, saran wrapped packages. And those are real simple for people to like, just go at mine is always the Tostito scoops with guacamole. Mm-hmm. You know, these are just basic things that you take for granted that people will know to buy. But the reason we know to buy them is because we picnic hard.
1: Yeah. You are, you are experts in the <laughs> picnicking field.
0: Uh, So yeah, Psycho was great. We did end up having to leave early because a storm rolled through and all of a sudden we saw lightning and we were like, "Uh uh-oh. And then sure enough, a voice came over (laughs) the speakers soon after that was like, we're so sorry. We, but, but, but we got to watch long enough where, um, you know, Norman killed her. So we got to see the big scene.
1: Yeah. Um, speaking of, of storms rolling through and, uh, Things not you know going super well. I was out last night for a little while said to myself all right I'm gonna get home because I can see this you know the lightning is there I'm gonna drive back to my apartment I can definitely make it doesn't seem like it's too bad I have to stop really quickly to get some gas
0: uh-huh.
1: get in my car at the gas station the sky's open and it was a full-on like tropical storm oh, the no. worst rain I have ever experienced it was like, Flash flooding everywhere. And oh of course, God. I have to drive through downtown Madison in this pouring rain where I can barely see anything. Oh, no. And of course, downtown Madison is between two lakes. So everything is very low. Yeah. And I was like, somebody's going to die. Like, am I yeah. going to die? This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. What is going on? And I was fucking terrified. So I just turned up the Barbie soundtrack so (laughs) loud that like
0: by the power of Barbie,
1: (laughs) basically. uh, And I did make it, but God, I was terrified. I was like, this is the most scared I've been driving since I, uh, yeah, since I got stuck in a rainstorm driving my friends home from a Radiohead concert in 2001
0: that's so scary yeah I what's so funny about that is they always of course warn people they're like don't drive during a flash flood and you're like yeah yeah, yeah I got it except I have to get home <laughs> so I'm obviously gonna try to drive that happened to me when I was uh at ISU in normal Illinois I had a summer job at an insurance place uh and there was a tornado warning and a flash flood warning and i was like if i'm going to die i'm not dying at work so i'm going to drive home and i drove during a flash flood and it was the cri- i did not know water could accumulate that fast yes
1: that's exactly how i felt i was just like what is happening this is assaulting me it is coming horizontally it is sheets of of pouring rain you know i was talking to a friend you know when i get home and he's like you drove what? Oh my God. Yeah. That and was- it's
0: incredibly <laughs> dangerous. Like I, at the time I had a Saturn, so it's plastic like yeah. through and through the only reason I did not, I'm convinced my car did not get swept away in the water was I drove really close behind a pickup truck and the pickup truck was carving a path through the water. And I'm convinced that's the only reason. Cause like trees were falling the water had a current because it was like moving so fast, and I was like, "For sure, I'm going to get swept away." And you know, thankfully, I didn't. But this is the reason they have those warnings. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I'm like, okay, this would be really—I would be really mad if I die because I was trying to get back. You know, because I thought, oh, it's totally fine. I'll right. definitely make it. I'll definitely beat this bad weather. And then
0: that's the final I get stuck thought in the middle of it. That's everybody's final thought before they get swept away, where they're like, "I'll be fine." <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean that is like that's what happened to the submarine guys. Like, be fine. we'll be
0: fine. It'll be yeah. fine. They wouldn't let us do it if it was dangerous.
1: Yeah, those waivers were just for show. I'm sure this plexiglass <laughs> submarine is going to be totally fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot in this episode, guys, about the strike. Um, I do want to mention up top that there was this mass confusion about how we could like show solidarity with the striking writers and actors. And if we could still review films, because it got very confusing with the guidelines. Um, There was a lot of misinformation out there. People uh, posting stuff on Twitter that they were just straight up talking out of their ass and they didn't know what they were talking about. Um, Reviewers can still review things. (laughs) Long story short. So we're going to talk about Barbenheimer in this episode we are going to review stuff. We'll continue to re- review stuff on this show and also talk about the strike, obviously, but, um, neither of us are sag aftra After Wow. SAG-AFTRA. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we have a little bit of flexibility, um, and we can review. Um, but I thought it was very telling that there was this mass confusion about what was happening because, Union numbers are so low that a lot of people don't even understand like what we are prohibited from doing during a strike. So I thought that was interesting in itself. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it it was so funny
1: as we were trying to figure these things out because I was like, oh, we're not that kind of influencer. They must be talking about people who do like agent, like work through agencies and all of this stuff. And then I was like, oh no, they're really. And of course, the last thing we would want to do is screw things up. For, well, people I, for the things longest time,
0: I like rejected that title. And then I have a friend who works for a, a publicist and she was like, why do you think you get invited to screenings? And I was like, oh, because I'm on like those lists. And she's like, why do you think you're on the list? And I was like, I don't know, because I like didn't want to say it. And she's like, because you're an influencer. And I was like, <laughs> I don't identify as an influencer. If anything, like the most, it's like a micro, micro, micro influencer. But she's like, they would not invite you to screenings if you were not an influencer. And I was like, fuck. All right. And this is when I thought influencers couldn't review. So I was like texting Meredith, like, what can we do in the episodes? And we were going to do like talk about some old films, which would have been fun, but I really wanted to talk about Barbenheimer because it's such a cultural event. So long story short, we can talk about Barbenheimer. And of course we uh, express all solidarity to the striking workers. And in fact, (laughs) I want to close out this episode We're going to get to it in a second, but I'm sure all of you have seen the Ron Perlman clip at this point. But if you have not, I'm going to play the audio for it at the end of this episode because it really jazzed me up. And I think we need that kind of energy because I I feel like the strike is going to go on a while. So just remember to be fucking mad at the studios. And anytime there's a clickbait tweet or article saying that your favorite movie or television show just got delayed to 2024 not to let them turn you against the striking writers and actors and to aim any anger or disappointment you feel at the studios because they refuse to even sit down at the table to negotiate and it's a hundred percent their fault.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that we're still going to do the, uh, the Ron Perlman and he's, (laughs) he's elaborated on those comments and, and talked about it, but also extremely eloquently and with great passion, basically pointing, excuse me, pointing out, look, these people have made it clear that they're not operating in good faith. They don't give a shit about us. And they are setting us like, this is a war. Like they are setting us up in this position. So like it's, if I'm using create, you know, language that sounds overheated, it's because these people want to, union members to suffer like and if we cannot let that happen and I was like oh yeah this is really uh that's a wonderful bit of (laughs) wonderful smart bit of 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 rhetoric there so yeah I think it was very
0: telling I mean we should be grateful because the studios have been very transparent about this where Ron Perlman recorded that video in response to an executive saying like um writers will start to lose their homes so we're going to win basically and ron's point in the video is when you start negotiations at we're going to make you lose your house that's war like you are saying we're going to war so thank you for saying that's what the terms are yeah <laughs> like, now we know <laughs> this is just a full ass war so okay and I really appreciate any statement that starts with, listen to me, motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> in the Ron Perlman voice. Cause it's like, Oh, y'all are, y'all are in trouble.
1: At yeah, this point. You, you have angered the large man,
0: don't do this. <laughs> but like, unfortunately, you know, um, there are a lot of writers. There are a lot of actors, the vast majority of them, in fact, who won't be able to make rent, who may not be able to buy food, as much as they would like to. So if you would like to contribute to the strike effort, Meredith, maybe you know other places, but I have two uh, links that I've, I've heard are good places to donate. So there's entertainmentcommunity.org and then there's uh, sag Foundation, And both of those places have donation links set up for the striking workers. So if you feel like it, please contribute.
1: Absolutely, and I think those are the two good ones. Um, uh, and then also, I think the WGA still has resources if you wanted to direct, directly yes. uh, donate to the writers' funds. Because let's not forget, there are two strikes going on, and while they're standing in solidarity with each other, uh, the money for the money <laughs> goes to different people. So. Right. Don't just don't just donate to one and then assume, you know, it's not going to everybody.
0: Right. And the guilds are usually they'll have uh, resources if you're looking for other places to donate to. Um, I just wanted to give it up to Fran Drescher, too, though, because I we we have a complicated history with Fran. (laughs) Like, you know, she she believes some stuff that um, we obviously don't support, say, about vaccinations. uh, But. I have to give her props when props are due, where the studios, I really, really think they thought she was going to be a pushover. And they got to that final negotiation meeting where suddenly it was like, oh, we want to scan background actors and own their image in perpetuity to use them however we want forever and only pay them a day rate. And Fran was like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and she came out of that meeting pissed. And I really, really don't think they thought she would come with the fire. And she did cause she was mad and everybody should be mad. Um, and she really, really pumped people up at an important time. So I do have to give Fran credit where credit is due. And also to any of the younger people, people out there who were confused about why she's the president of SAG-AFTRA. Um, Fran was sort of like one of the last figures in the United States when we had a monoculture that everybody knew. So like you knew the nanny, your parents knew the nanny, your grandparents knew the nanny. She was one of the most recognizable faces on television and we don't have a monoculture anymore. So it's really hard to find another figure like that. So I think that is one of the main reasons that Fran <laughs> became president, because everybody knows her. And, and yeah. she's very normal when she talks and she's got that accent. So she doesn't sound like a bougie Hollywood person. Um, well, and
1: and yeah. if you go into the history of SAG... It's kind of surprising who some of the presidents have been, you know, right. like the SAG-AFTRA officers have been pretty famous actors. And you just don't think about how this like the currently on the board, or, or I think I was looking at the names. Um, if you look at the list, it's alphabetical. Sharon Stone comes right before Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Right. So there are a huge range of people who do this. And so when right, these elections right. come up, you're like,
0: huh, um, I was not expecting that. But, but just then. Of, like to go back to what I was saying, both of those people too were from monoculture times yeah. where we, I just, I can't think of anybody who – Maybe Tom Cruise, but even he's a throwback to monoculture. So um, I think there's a reason behind why these seemingly random people are picked. And it's because, oh, everybody knows you. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Uh, you're not some indie uh, actor that like film Twitter will know, but your mom would be like, who, you know? (laughs) Um, So before we get into more uh, review stuff... I had posted on Light Trees and News' Instagram if you guys had any specific questions about uh, the strike or if you wanted us to talk about something. We had a request to talk about Newsies that we don't have to (laughs) fulfill. I like Newsies. You should go watch Newsies. Uh, And then there was another one that I thought was very funny. Not anything about the strike per se, but it is tangentially related to Barbenheimer, which is someone requested we talk about Christopher Nolan's fugitive brother.
1: Thank you. That also is something <laughs> I'm happy to discuss.
0: <laughs> so this story is, like, fascinating to me. And then we can sort of just segue into uh, Oppenheimer for obvious reasons that I'll get to in a second. But it is this really fascinating story where Christopher Nolan has a brother named Matthew who... Um, has faced allegations that he's a hired killer (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that he was behind the death of a U.S. financer um, who was found in uh, Costa Rica Rica. in, like, in 2005, I think. Yeah. Um,
1: So So the question was, did he torture this man to death on some sort of contract?
0: So it's a little complicated because... he allegedly like Interpol says that his name was and I hope everyone's sitting down. His alias was Matthew Oppenheimer. (laughs) So there's our Oppenheimer connection for everybody. But he was eventually arrested, imprisoned in Chicago. um, And he did he escape?
1: He not in not related to this crime. He was in prison in Chicago on some sort of bank fraud charges Mm -hmm. and then he tried to escape at that point
0: he like tied together bed sheets or something yeah Yeah, 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 and tried
1: to like climb out of a prison in chicago Um, so there's a
0: little bit of confusion because like he claims that this is all like a vendetta because he owed people money in costa rica and like in vengeance they whoever they is right uh killed this guy and tried to set him up to look like he did it but you know uh who knows <laughs> <laughs> du, I, you know, I,
1: I just think there are some important questions we need to ask if you have reached a point where somebody is accusing you
0: yeah some sh- of shady killing shit has gone someone
1: yeah. and in Costa Rica is still a pretty like wild place uh If you're murder, if you're accused of murdering somebody in Costa Rica in the early 2000s, like something weird was going on.
0: And this guy was like killed. He was like tortured and killed. It was really, really uh, gruesome. Um, So, yeah, he was on the run for like four years. Uh, He was trapped by the FBI. Um, Yeah, it's a really wild story. Um, And Nolan, Christopher Nolan... Uh, I don't know if he gets asked about it that much or if it's sort of made clear before interviews where he's like, I don't want to talk about my fucking brother. <laughs> you, know? Which is, you know? I wouldn't blame I him. Yeah. I would, I would say like there's, there's the, well, it's
1: weird that we never ask celebrities about the terrible things they've done. You know, the sort of Brad Pitts of the
0: world. Like if he had done it, you should definitely ask Christopher Nolan about it. But I do understand like it's shitty. To constantly be asked. I'm I'm obviously thinking about like women who are in shitty relationships and they break up and then interviewers ask them about like the horrible behavior of their former male partner. And it's like, why does this woman have to (laughs) talk about this man? Like she didn't do anything, you know? Um, And I kind of feel that way with Christopher Nolan where it's like he didn't do anything. So why should he have to talk about his fucking brother?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine there's just probably some more stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> you just have to imagine that things are a little more complicated in their relationship. I'm
0: sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the wild story of, of Matthew Nolan. And if you want to know more about it, Newsweek has an article about it where they fact checked. Um, Cause there was a tweet that went viral about how Christopher Nolan has a hitman brother. Who's, code name is Oppenheimer and people like lost their minds right Um, so you can read about him there it is a really interesting story (laughs) like it does kind of under I don't know like Christopher Nolan's so good at these like high adrenaline heist action sequences and I think it's interesting that he's he's channeled that part of his brain into creative endeavors and his brother is just straight up living it out Like, I'm just going to go do that stuff myself. I'm not going to, like, direct a film. I'm just going to be a hitman. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Matthew. You do you, I guess. Um, So the reason I wanted to start with our Oppenheimer review is because you have not seen Barbie yet.
1: That is true. And I know for anyone who says what is wrong with you, of course, you should. how have you not seen Barbie yet? It's because I rented a theater so that a bunch of people here in Madison can go see it. Right. I am doing my best to wait until then to have the communal experience of watching it with fifty-five friends.
0: It's going to be so fun. Um, when are you guys going?
1: Uh, a week from Monday.
0: Oh, damn! So okay. I saw a little bit. For, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll give my very I'll try to stay spoiler free in my review. Um, spoiler, guys! I loved both of these films. <laughs> so, uh, in case you were wondering it seems like a, an elderly millennial thing where both of these films sort of represent the, the halves of our brains where it's like, you know, part um, feminism slash capitalism. And then the other half is just, we're all going to (laughs) die. So like both of those really, both of these films really fed into that. Um, I've just noticed I like, obviously these films are incredibly popular right now, uh, but Specifically, our age range seems to connect with both of them in a very interesting way. So, and and by the way, I just want to shout out Margot Ruby really quick because she, in the pitch meeting, two Warner Brothers said, this film is going to make a billion dollars. And they were all like, ha, ha, ha. And later she was like, maybe I overpromised. And they just crossed a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so she was right. Anyway, um, yeah, I... I guess let's start with first impressions, general impressions. Uh, how did you feel about Oppenheimer?
1: I loved it. I was utterly entranced from the very beginning and just sat on the edge of my seat for a three-hour movie. I was overwhelmed by tension. I thought the performances were incredible. I thought it was beautifully constructed. The, the sound was great. Like it. I hate using video game language when discussing artists getting better but like it felt like Nolan leveled up you know like things that had been frustrating or imperfect or problems in earlier films like he really ironed out those wrinkles and collaborated with people like with his people um in a way that was just so successful um I'm
0: I'm a little torn about <laughs> I really respect that Nolan is clearly listening to feedback because he's been dinged for uh, quite a few things over the years. But one of the big ones is that uh, he never has sex in his films. And then I saw Oppenheimer and I was like, maybe we should not have asked him to have sex <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know if this is a, yes. This man, yes, humans—they have the sex. Ooh, uh, he has
0: a—he has an interesting take on sex. Um, my my big issue with it was not the sex scenes themselves per se. It's that the first sex scene comes out of absolutely nowhere, and they—he hasn't even bothered to really establish um, Florence Pugh's character. There's one kind of like what Nolan thinks is like flirty banter is so strange to me. Like now I know him well enough where I'm like, oh, he thinks this is sexy when these characters are like having this very, very brief interaction. We know nothing about this woman. Um, and then boom, right to the sex scene. And then there is another sexy that is a cutaway to when Oppenheimer is testifying in this closed door um, hearing He is describing this affair he had in front of his wife, Kitty, uh, played by Emily Blunt. And she is hallucinating or imagining uh, Florence Pugh and uh, Killian Murphy having sex. And (laughs) so there was just like a sex scene in this crowded room that was so surreal. I kind of liked it. I did kind of like that moment. I mean, that was just, it was so menacing. It almost yeah.
1: gave like it follows energy. Yeah. Where suddenly the sex scene was like one of the creep, like the tall guy just coming through the door it, it follows. Where By the you're just way, like, oh dear, this is very unsettling. I do not like this.
0: I'm on the IMDB for Oppenheimer. Florence Pugh's not even on the main page. Oh my god. That's how incidental of a character she is. Anyway. No one still has a major, major issue with um, writing women. And he clearly, again, he was listening to feedback. He does try to give Kitty a moment where she redeems herself during this meeting. And it really did not work for me. It felt really crowbarred in. Um, and again, this is me like kind of nitpicking because I did enjoy the film a lot. But I, he's... I don't know if he's ever going to get better at writing women and that's okay. It's just that we need more um Greta Gerwig's and other female creators who are good at it. <laughs> if, <laughs> if we're ever going to see uh, this kind of Oscar bait film with a wife who isn't just like, I support you, honey. You know, like in the background, like yeah.
1: I'll but watch they- the kids. I had a very different read on that, actually, and on her character. I felt like she, yes, it's sort of the trope of like, this is an, you know, this functional alcoholic, but to me, it read very much of a, oh, this chick has just hated being like, this is just like every other fucking 1940s, 50s housewife, like, she's brilliant and now she's stuck, and she hates it.
0: I got and that, and it's not subtle at all. In no, film. But like then he, I
1: thought it worked really well. That like the fact that he's not great at writing fully. I thought her performance m- made up for the fact that she didn't have like the page didn't include an enormous amount of shading because women were essentially shoved into one-dimensional lives at that point in time. So,
0: but that doesn't make them one dimensional people. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't expect him to be like, let's rewrite Kitty. So she's an astronaut, <laughs> you know, like she's, she's a housewife. She's limited in that sense. But Oh, like when she drops her purse and the flask pops out, I'm like, we get it, dude. You know, like what the fuck? <laughs> like My God. Um, And you could cut Emily Blunt out of this film entirely and I don't think it loses anything, which is another sign that perhaps we haven't developed this character enough. He's clearly... What he's clearly interested in is the Trinity test. And I think that's okay. I almost think it gets worse the more self-conscious he gets. And he... uh, tries to do something different like i don't think he was comfortable directing those sex scenes i don't think he was comfortable trying to explore kitty oppenheimer more it felt very hamfisted it felt very clumsy um if he's going to try to do stuff like that i think he needs help writing it you know like maybe bringing a woman <laughs> to like help um and the other issue i had with him and i've had with his other films as well is you can really tell what he was excited to get to. And I told you the first 10 minutes of this film, I was nervous because the pacing is insane. How much he's trying to fit in. Because again, what he is interested in is getting the team together. And that's when the film gets the most exciting because this is the meat of it. You know, we're we're pulling the team together. Um, Matt Damon is fucking great in this movie. Uh, And he is very badly needed in it. Like, Cillian Murphy's wonderful. But uh, Christopher Nolan is not known for his humor in his films. And for something like this, I think you do need a little bit of humor just to keep the momentum going. And Matt Damon was great at that. You know, just, like, really wry lines and real dry humor. Um, And Robert Downey Jr. as well had a couple moments like that. But... The pacing is so wild up top. It's going so fast. And then we get to the team, we get to the Trinity test, and he calms down a little bit and really draws it out. And then it is spectacular. Like, I can't think of another movie going experience like when the Trinity test happens and he cuts the sound Mm
1: -hmm. and you can
0: suddenly, like, hear your own heart beating and, like, you're so aware of your own breath that it was just, like, that alone, I was, like, it was worth it. It
1: was worth yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, for, like you said, he clearly was interested in making this movie because he wanted a chance to depict this on screen. But he did end up, like, making all of the right choices. And then by following it up with the scene in the little gymnasium where he's supposed to be giving this. Rah, rah, we did it. Speech, and he starts freaking out. I don't understand how (laughs)
0: anyone could say this film is like not holding Oppenheimer accountable for that scene because it's so grotesque how excited everybody is. And it's so clear to me that Christopher Nolan is horrified by this like blood hungry you know, patriotism. And I don't understand how anybody could see that scene and leave the movie thinking that Nolan doesn't have an opinion on Oppenheimer. Because that's a very common review right now where they're like, but you don't tell us how to feel about this guy. And first of all, I'm like, that's not really the filmmaker's job. But also, I think it's very clear at the end of that film that Christopher Nolan is horrified by this bleak future that was created by Oppenheimer's work. I think that's like extremely obvious.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is, you know, he, I don't know how much clearer it can be that he seems, he's of the opinion that they
0: just destroyed, the destroyed the world. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they, they say, like, that is, again, that is like one of the final lines when he is, You know, it's a fictional scene. uh, Didn't happen in real life, obviously. But when he's talking to Einstein and he's like, this was your great fear and I think we just did it. (laughs) Like he literally says those words. And then so many reviewers apparently walked out of that thinking, but I don't know how they really felt about Oppenheimer. And listen, I know there was some like, the great man narrative sprinkled throughout this film where it's like you can't hold the great man responsible if someone takes his invention and uses it for evil. And like I don't agree with that, obviously. But I really think Nolan was exploring that stuff to make it a compelling story. Because yeah. if I also just...
1: thought it was very clear yeah. from the film that Oppenheimer spent an enormous part of his life after Trinity and after the Manhattan Project trying to avoid looking directly at what he had done. Yeah, and he did there it. are like he explicit never... scenes in there that like, where he just, where he, there's a slideshow of what happens at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he's literally looks away. Look like, at I it, don't yeah. know how much more explicit it is that he didn't want to fully grapple with this and struggled with it. I mean, There's a reason it's based on a book called American Prometheus. Like I, these are not subtle metaphors. Christopher Nolan has never been a subtle filmmaker.
0: I think people's issue with it was he gives Oppenheimer a lot of credit and shows him as being like very introspective and thinking about it a lot. I, I mean, obviously no one will ever know because we're not Oppenheimer, but he never apologized. Um, he never really grappled with it publicly. And I think a lot of people took issue with maybe that just Nolan was giving him a little too much credit. (laughs) Like he, he seemed like he was very much vindicated where he was like, I had a job. I did the job. I thought Nolan did a good job, you know, demonstrating that there were a lot of Jewish scientists working on this who thought they were building a weapon that would be used on Hitler Mm-hmm. And that is very different than that sudden pivot to we're dropping it on Japan. You know, um, that's a really difficult situation. And there, there's a scene where Oppenheimer walks in on a meeting of some of the scientists led by one of the lady scientists. That's right. There were lady scientists um, who are opposing the use of the bomb. And I thought that was really interesting, but we don't really get to know those people or hear too much from them. And I think that's just a natural casualty of having 80 goddamn actors in this movie. <laughs> like it's every famous person in Hollywood is in this movie.
1: Yeah. The scientists and graduate students are basically a grown up child. It's like just a murderer's row of grown-up
0: All white child stars
1: and teen, uh, teen heartthrobs. Uh, and every white
0: working male actor in their late twenties to mid thirties is in this film. (laughs) Yes. Every single one of them. And Um, I'm not
1: mad about it because everybody does a great job.
0: (laughs) And listen, it was a bunch of white people working on the bomb. We just got a, you know, not entirely, but it's not like Nolan whitewashed (laughs) who was working on this bomb. Um, so yeah, I wanted to just shout out. I think I know this is early. I think Killian is almost certainly a lock for best actor.
1: I have a hard time imagining anyone else will come in and and
0: You never know, this, but Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I, you know, with with everything especially with everything being as crazy as it is with the strike and the fact that yeah. studios are, you know, they'll probably push to cancel the damn awards if they get away with it.
0: I think the um, only potential challenger is Leo. But um, I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know. Um, He might get overshadowed in that film. But this was such a difficult role because, and again, I've dinged Nolan for this in the past. He, I don't get happy when I hear about an actor that I really like is working with Nolan because I don't think he gives actors a lot to work with. Mm -hmm. He's more interested in directing big sequences, which is fine, but he doesn't give actors a moment, like their Academy Award moment. And this, by default, Killian, like it's one big Oscar reel for him. Yeah. It I is mean, like, because
1: it's it's so it's all from his perspective. It's
0: all introspective. And Nolan has not written a lot of it. So we just have to look at Killian's face. And he's so gifted as an actor. Like he can have eight emotions flit across his face. And there's no dialogue, and I can't think of anybody else in that role where that works. It had to be yeah. Killian Murphy.
1: I really do feel like there's nobody else who could have played it, and he's just—he was—he was so good. I again, I was just like, Oh, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Which...
0: Absolutely mesmer- mesmerizing, and like he's normally really beautiful to look at on screen, and he has beautiful eyes, but he lost a lot of weight for this role and he is like 90% eyes and there's a couple scenes like during the Trinity test where the entire screen goes white and you just see his eyes and it's incredible <laughs> like it is yeah. so hypnotic to look at so Killian I think is almost guaranteed I think Robert Downey Jr. has a very good chance of best supporting actor as Louis Strauss I know a lot of people didn't think that storyline worked and the sort of you know black and white to color uh objective truth to subjective truth was it didn't work for a lot of people it was a little hokey sometimes it like straight into aaron sorkin territory you know yeah
1: there were times where it felt a little bit like an episode of the west wing
0: exactly but again i think if you have robert downey jr doing that it's watchable it's good yeah I Anybody mean, else is, in that it, role, I think I stopped listening during that, you know?
1: Yeah. The, the Again, it's just having hired all of these people, like, moments that could have fallen flat or could have yeah. not really worked ended up carrying a lot of power and having a lot of impact just because the performers were so good and clearly having such an absolute blast, like...
0: Especially Robert Downey Jr. I mean, he's free from the Marvel prison, you know? And you hear him talk in interviews, and it's like, my God, like, listen, I know it's like boohoo, Crimea cry me a river. These guys make millions and millions and millions of dollars for Marvel, um, hundreds of millions of dollars for Marvel. <laughs> but Robert Downey Jr. is an actor, and he loves acting, and he takes his craft really seriously, and you can tell. And when you hear him interviewed about this movie, it's like... He's so grateful that he gets to actually act in a film again. And it makes me really sad for like these guys who I understand why and women, why they take the Marvel check. But I'm like, man, if you love acting and you have to leave acting for over a decade, like those are years he's never going to get back, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, frankly, there's, it's an interesting testament to the strength of his will that he stayed sober during that period.
0: Good Lord, like. right? Right? He <laughs> like, looked, honestly, he should be very, very, very proud of that because that is no small feat. Um, I also wanted to give it up for Alden Ehrenreich, who has not had an easy time. <laughs> like, this man was cast as young Han Solo, and it did not go great, everybody. I don't know if you saw that film. I didn't. I don't think many people did. Um, but... He's a great actor. He's great in Oppenheimer opposite Robert Downey Jr. in their scenes. I also wanted to give it up for, and he's a horrible human being, but excellent use of Casey Affleck in Yeah, this movie. He is we, bone chilling in this movie.
1: I have not stopped thinking. I'm like, oh, you are so frightening. Ooh. The man's got like five minutes of screen time three minutes of screen time and total. It's terrifying
0: terrifying and I had oh. to give it up for Matt Damon because he talks about that character before he ever appears on screen and he is Leslie Groves is so afraid of him that you're like my god who is this guy and then you hear Casey Affleck before you see him and I said out loud oh my god <laughs> when I realized it was him um so yeah, we recommend Oppenheimer, A plus. Did you want to say anything else? Uh no. Right. Oh uh,
1: shout out to Crumholtz now and Christopher Nolan getting the three main guys from Ten Things I Hate About You into his movies over the course of his filmmaking career. Now uh, he has he's had given beautiful star turns to Crumholtz, Joseph Gordon Levitt, and Heath Ledger. And I think there's something really beautiful that this dude clearly watches a lot of teen movies and then gets people and and then pulls out amazing performances from them.
0: Absolutely. I also wanted to shout out two people who I think without them this film does not work, period. Uh, Ludwig Goranson did the score and it's absolutely (sighs) brilliant. I think he might be a lock for the Oscars. And then Jennifer Lame uh, is his editor. And this film is edited magnificently. And I think without Jennifer, um, it doesn't work. So hopefully Jennifer will be recognized by the Academy as well.
1: Yeah. I do feel like once we see Killers of the Flower Moon, it's going to be very interesting because my guess is there's going to be a lot of overlap in the, oh shit, like the assassins are duking it out for all of these awards.
0: (laughs) Right. And also let's just remember that Oppenheimer is still like shiny and new right now. But, you know, sometimes with the Academy, people forget. And the later it gets in the season, if a movie like Flowers of the Killer Moon comes through, they might steal all the thunder, you know?
1: Yeah. But again, we have no idea because the strike is making everything crazy. You know. Um, And there's a – well, do you want to segue – as a way to segue into Barbie, I do think it's beautiful that the last press tours we got before the strike – were Oppenheimer and Barbie. How like, do you,
0: How do you feel about the people who say, just release the films, we don't need a press tour? Uh,
1: I mean, I think that we should just release... I, I think... I, I wish that I... I think that they should release the films because they, they shouldn't need a press tour. However... I recognize that people are morons and they do need keys jangled in front of them in order to go see things.
0: It's not even keys jangling. It's that I think people who say we don't need a press tour are chronically online. And we all know that these films are coming out, but people who are not chronically online, it takes a lot like constant, constant advertising to break through. Cause even if you see a billboard, you'll forget about it, you'll forget when it comes out. But if you see a billboard and a commercial and a subway ad and you see the actress on the Today Show, it finally gets into your brain. So, like the people who were just like, put out Dune, I'm like, you want to put out Dune without Timmy and Zendaya promoting it? I think that's a bad idea.
1: I don't know. I think I disagree there because I think that nobody. I just don't think that it's going to end up mattering for a movie like that.
0: I think also, it's, I, I think don't it's,
1: think that people I think that the fact that they secretly that Timmy secretly hates her and they probably can't be in the same room together without him being a dick would end up being more damaging to the press tour than not having it.
0: Oh, see, I don't buy any of that at all. Um, yeah, I don't think that's true. But um, oh.
1: You've seen all of those rumors, though. I absolutely believe the blind items that he does not like her.
0: Really? I I don't believe anything Auntie says. (laughs) Because he's been so wrong so many times. Um, And he hates Timmy. But anyway, um, no, I I think they get along fine. They can be professional together. Um, I've seen so many people who maybe aren't sci-fi fans and don't even care about the film, but like them go to the movie for that reason. Like, I can tell you multiple showings of Dune, there were just, like, fans of them there. Not necessarily, like, sci-fi heads. And those fans are the ones who come in because of that constant onslaught of media, you know? Um, I think promotion is very important. (laughs) Like, So I get very nervous when people are like, let's just drop this blockbuster, and it'll, like, be fine on its own merits. And it's like, listen... I know Barbie spent a shit ton of money on promotion and it was sort of like, you know, a uh, d- disgusting display of capital, if you will, but it fucking works, you know, that, yeah. that kind of blanketing in our culture. But at the same time,
1: by not releasing the movies, that is a conscious decision on the part of the studios to cause greater pain to people who rely on the film industry, uh, And to try and break solidarity. So pushing these, like, what are they going to do? Only release small movies? Like, I think that pushing things back is a big problem because they're saying we would rather kill movie theaters than negotiate with actors and writers.
0: Yeah. And what's wild is I I do, you know, th- think, even though the math isn't mathing, that the studio is making that calculation where they're yeah. like, oh, we'll just fucking kill everybody. And it's like, that's suicidal. And they're like, we don't care. <laughs> like, we would it's- rather do that than give up 2% of our salary.
1: There are plenty of ways that they could spend enormous amounts of money that they would have otherwise spent on flying people to junkets and doing all of this stuff. Like, they can still advertise Not having these people like standing on a red carpet or going to the Venice Film Festival is I don't think is actually nearly as big of a deal as you think it is.
0: I think, yeah, the film festival stuff is separate from what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the stuff like they're on the Today Show. They're doing stuff for TikTok. The film festival stuff, I'm like, that is film Twitter area where it's like, I don't think tweens are like, oh, some of them are, but like the vast majority of tweens are not breathlessly watching a live stream of the Venice Film Festival. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> they'll just see it when it comes to streaming. But so like, I thought Luca was right to delay challengers and like all that stuff, because it's kind of like it comes out when it comes out, you know? Yeah. Um, but there is that sort of immersive marketing that's separate from all of that, where it's just like, you see it everywhere. And like, you do need to do that to break through. Cause like, I see this all the time with like comics promoting their shows and they feel like they're promoting too much. And they'll go say to New Jersey to do a show. And then the next day people are like, when are you coming to Jersey? And they're like, motherfucker, I have been promoting this show in Jersey for six months to the point where I thought I was like, doing it too much and people still don't hear about it so that's why marketing goes ham with something like barbie uh it worked for barbie (laughs) it was a fucking massive hit um i had said to charles before it dropped that i was like i think this is the smartest take we're gonna get on barbie because it's greta and noah And it is definitely smart. There's a lot of big ideas in this movie. And I won't get into details because I don't want to spoil it for Meredith. But I'll say some of the feminism stuff is extremely like 2018. And that's not a read. I think, again, with our culture, sometimes you need to speak to 2018, even though like maybe some of us have moved past That a little bit, you know, there's a lot of people who haven't and who haven't heard these ideas before. And this will be like really revolutionary for them. So that's why I'm not like rolling my eyes at like these long monologues, feminist monologues, because I'm like, I think there's still a lot of people out there who need to hear this stuff. Yeah. Um, And okay, (laughs) I want to sing everybody's praises before I get to my my thing that I think is going to annoy people. Um, Margot should be nominated for an Academy Award, if not win. Hands down, I think. <coughs> uh, Issa Rae, magnificent. Kate McKinnon, wonderful. Um, and you could just go down the line. Like, everybody is perfectly cast. Michael Sarah, um, Yeah, Kinsley Benadir, <laughs> for me, is so good and so charismatic. He pulls focus a lot, which is not me dinging him. It's just like, I don't know. The dude's really funny and he's really hot. And I was like, I'd like you to be in more things.
1: Yeah. Maybe that's why they didn't hire Manny Jacinto. <laughs> oh,
0: no, I'm like whatever on him. But anyway. <laughs> oh no, I would
1: prefer to have him in. I would prefer him being funny over, um, Simu. Cause he's clearly such Although, a, let
0: me say, dumb. and you haven't seen it yet. I have seen it twice now. This is the most I've ever liked Simu. I think he's well, really funny. He holds his own with Ryan. I think if they use Simo more like this, I would be a fan, but I'm generally mm-hmm. not a fan. Um, yeah. So, my big fear going into this was that Ryan Gosling would be so good, Ken would overshadow the movie. Guys, <laughs> he overshadows the movie a little bit. And it, it's just in the sense that he gets to do more fun stuff, whereas Barbie, Margot, um, has to wrestle with like big existential questions and like I saw it with a friend who who just said she cried a lot in this movie and I think that's like an oversimplification of the performance Margot gives. She gets a really layered performance where she's very charming, quirky, cute. Um, I think she's great but there are a lot of serious scenes where she's like dealing with these big questions and Ken just gets to be a fucking douchebag, like in the, the, the funnest way possible. And he gets the best song. It's Ryan Gosling. And there were quite a few moments watching this where I was like, Oh no, <laughs> is he the highlight of Barbie? Mm-hmm. And obviously you can't answer that cause you haven't seen it yet, but in my mind, they're about even uh, Margot and Ryan, but I've heard arguments from other people whose opinion I respect that he kind of ran away with the movie and I really can't fault them for feeling that way. And it kind of sucks just (laughs) in that one very small way. Cause I'm like, fuck, why did you make him so fun? Like he's (laughs) like, and it's Ryan Gosling. It's the most charming man on the planet, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean,
0: or at least he is good at pretending to be that, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean we all we all lived through the hey girl yes era of the internet. So this is kind of perfect. And I guess like it's kind of nice to imagine an instance where there is a problem with the fact that somebody is too good and too charming <laughs> in in his supporting role like Yeah. I'll take that.
0: Oh yeah, and I think if there's anybody who could challenge best supporting actor, I think they should put Ryan Gosling in best supporting actor, even though you could make the argument he's best actor. Um, he's the only one I think that could legitimately challenge Robert Downey Jr. Although I don't think the Academy would ever, ever give a comedy uh, the Oscar over a serious biography. A serious <laughs> actor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to shout out America uh, because I, she gets a very, very long monologue at the end that apparently they had to shoot like 50 times. And I don't know many actresses that could have not just handled the monologue, but sold it and like made our theater cry, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And she sells it. So America and Issa were two of the, the supporting highlights for me, aside from Ryan, who absolutely like steals every scene he's in. Um, I also just wanted to say, like, in response to these little losers on the internet incels being like, this movie hates men. I actually think this movie is incredibly compassionate towards men, incredibly compassionate towards Ken. All this film is arguing is that patriarchy is bad for everyone. And that's it. And if you see that as an attack, I think that's a moment uh, where you should (sighs) self-reflect. Well... People
1: are great at doing that when they're on the Internet.
0: Right. Right. Um, And they all love Ben Shapiro. So on that note, everybody, we're out of time, if you can even believe it. Um, I can
1: believe it. I mean, getting to the most important, the (laughs) most important things of the summer, Strike Summer and Barbenheimer, I feel like we've covered the important shit.
0: Absolutely. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can follow Light Treason Pod on all the socials. You can email the show at Light Treason News at Gmail, I believe. And we're going to end this episode with some wise, wise words from Mr. Ron Perlman. Again, if you can support the striking workers, please do so. Even if it's just like, you know, hashtag WGA strike, anything like that. If you could fact check a stupid relative who's like these greedy actors to be like, well, actually, most of them can't afford health care and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, we can all help in our small ways, right? Absolutely. All right, guys, have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And while you're at it, get out there and cause a little trouble and do not cross Ron Perlman.
1: The motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve While you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing. Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out.